Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Poulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. As the first book of the New Testament, Matthew enjoys the distinct honor of headlining and setting the tone for all of part two of the Bible. Like a carefully placed advertisement in your social media feed, every verse Every word, every letter in the opening chapter of Matthew is both strategic and precious. Given this fact, as disciples of Matthew's teaching, we must begin our study by acknowledging the prime significance of each choice made by the author. Each name, included or omitted, the stories behind each name, the meaning of these names, and finally, how they are made functional in Matthew and the New Testament in general. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 221 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Father. We are starting early today, and we are still taking a slow drive through the first 17 verses of Matthew. This is a section of Matthew that we shouldn't just breeze through quickly. It's a section that we should take time to let seep through our clogged ears until it penetrates our conscience so that we can really hear what the gospel writer is trying to teach us. This is very valuable real estate. I mean, this is the first chapter of the entire New Testament. If the author was planning on wasting our time, that would be a huge disappointment on how he's using this most valuable real estate. So I want to take seriously that this is actually not a waste of time, just a bunch of names, or as some people say, oh, it just shows that he's human and then just move on, or whatever they want to say about this chapter. And I want to say, no, this is something very important. And without this, we can't understand the story of the New Testament and the story of Jesus that we find there, that we need this chapter if we're going to understand not just Matthew, but what the New Testament is saying. Verse 2, Richard, is a power-packed verse again, because of the content of the names. I'm going to go ahead and read the verse and then single out the names for discussion today. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And of course, in other translations, it says, in my estimation more correctly, you and I talked about this earlier today, Richard, instead of saying the father of, the King James says, Abraham begat Isaac, which corresponds more faithfully to the Greek. Agenisen is the word in Greek. It's a verb. And the problem with the translation that we started with is that it simply is. He was the father of. That 
was the father of could be anything. I mean, people could make so much out of that. What does it mean to be a father? That's not what we're talking about here. He begat. He was the progenitor of a Yanison. It's a verb. He did something. Abraham did something. And then there was Isaac. Now, of course, when we know about Abraham, it gets more complicated than Abraham alone doing something. We understand that. But a Yanison means that there was an action taken. Yanison genao, I think the point also is that in the Greek, that's a technical term. And it corresponds to its usage, perhaps elsewhere in Matthew, certainly elsewhere in the Septuagint or in the Greek New Testament. So looking at it in English, again, where it says father, as opposed to the act of begetting, it disadvantages the person hearing the text in English. Because if you think back to our episode on function and functionality, so much of it hinges on the connection between words. So I just want to stress that once again, it comes up often in our Tuesday show as well, that, you know, if you're studying scripture in your native language, always have a dictionary nearby, if nothing else, just to pick up on these discrepancies. But I mentioned at the outset, Rich, that we were going to talk about the names. So we have some key players here. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, major figures in the book of Genesis. And then it mentions here that Jacob was the father of or begat Judah and his brothers. Now, again, in some translations, it's translated more correctly as Judas. In the Greek, it's Euthus. And this is so important because when you hear the story, you will later hear about a disciple named Euthus who will betray Jesus. So it's ominous and powerful that already there's this connection between the betrayal of Jesus and the sins of the characters in verse 2. Euthus is the name in Greek. And so whatever your translation, there's probably a break because when you're reading Genesis, you think of Judah, the son of Jacob. And then if you're reading your New Testament, you know of the disciple Judas who betrayed Jesus. And it's very easy to break this connection. Judah comes from the Hebrew, Yehuda, and Yudas is Greek from the same name. So the problem is sometimes we go with the transcription of the Hebrew, and sometimes we go with the transcription of the Greek, which translated the name into Greek from Hebrew. The reader who knows what happens later on in the story is going to hear, as you said, an ominous foreshadowing here with the son of Jacob. Now, the genealogy begins with Abraham. This is not necessarily surprising if you know the rest of the story, but it's interesting that the author chose to begin here. If you want to talk about the genealogy of Jesus, why not go back to Adam? Why not go back to the father of Abraham, Terah? It's interesting you mentioned that, Richard, because as you know, in the reverse genealogy that's presented in chapter 3 of Luke, it goes back to Adam, not to Abraham. So these two authors are doing something different. So we really have to ask the question, why Abraham here? And in light of your point about the value of the real estate of the second verse of the New Testament, it becomes an even bigger question, doesn't it? No, exactly, Father. Matthew is using this real estate to tell his story. It's not just happenstance that, oh, I'll just start with Abraham. Because the author is making a choice. 
He could have gone with the original progenitor, Adam, like Luke did, but Matthew's doing something very specific. He wants to start with the promise. Matthew knows about Paul and Paul talking about the faith of Abraham and how the story of God's people begins with the children of the promise, the children of faithfulness, of trust, and Abraham trusted in the Lord. And so this is not just the story of a bunch of guys giving birth. This is the story of the faithfulness of Abraham, which is the trust that Abraham had in the Lord. Well, and there's also a very important difference here between Adam and Abraham, because one of Adam's sons committed genocide against one half of the entire human race. It's a metaphoric genocide, because if you're the two sons of Adam and one of you kills the other, that's that's a pretty significant kill in terms of proportion to the population. Again, it's symbolic, not literal, but it expresses the ugliness of the betrayal of Abel, the murder of Abel. And beginning with Adam's sin and Eve's sin and Cain's sin, you have a series of genealogies that play out the legacy of the sin because it's a human seed. It's a failed seed, a Zerah. But with Abraham, you have the promise. In a way, the promise of God supplants the seed of Adam because where Adam's seed fails, the divine seed, the word, the word that was divine in the beginning, which we'll get to when we get to the Gospel of John. The divine seed, which is the word that dangles from the lips of God, the word he speaks, that's the seed that gives life. That's the seed that produces children for Abraham. That's the seed that truly fulfills the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. It's not that you shouldn't be fruitful and multiply, as in have progeny on the earth actual children, but that's not enough. It doesn't fulfill the commandment because your progeny has to be adopted as children of this promise, the seed that was gifted to Abraham in the covenant. So Matthew, as you said correctly, Rich, I absolutely agree with you, is demonstrating in the story of Jesus's birth and his genealogy and so forth. He is demonstrating or playing out as a kind of mashal what Paul is saying about the promise and the seed. And that's where the next two names become critical, because you have two characters, Isaac and Jacob, who couldn't be further apart from each other in terms of their standing before God. With Isaac as the son of Sarah and the son of the faithfulness of Abraham, where God intervenes in order for Sarah to beget a child. And so we have Isaac, who is the offspring of this faithfulness. By moving through this generation of the one who was the child of faithfulness, and also in the name is preserved, the verb laugh, Yishak. And so to have Isaac be the reminder of this intervention by God to impregnate Sarah in a way that was foolish, and it sounded foolish to Sarah and to Abraham. And so this foolishness is what really kicks off 
Abraham's line. The foolish faithfulness that begets the next generation is how we begin here, and then we move along on to Jacob. Abraham and Sarah could not make a child. It's a very important fact. It was only when God intervened with his word, his divine seed, when God himself willed that Sarah would become pregnant, when God decided that Sarah would become pregnant, that Sarah became pregnant. This to me, Richard, raises the question, did Abraham actually beget Isaac or did God beget Isaac? You have to be serious about this question because if God didn't act, there would be no Isaac. And the text does not say that Abraham went in and knew Sarah. That's not what it says. It says that God intervened and Isaac was conceived and God got the last laugh as indicated in the name of Isaac. So I'm emphasizing this, Rich, because of the previous point about life coming from the seed of God and not from the seed of man. Notice also that typically in the genealogies of the ancient Near East, a king who was the head of a city would set up a genealogy that would trace his lineage all the way back to the beginning as a kind of deity, either the son of the deity or the deity himself or whatever. But the point was the king and his dynasty were eternal. The genealogy here, which begins with Abraham, is in a way decapitated because Abraham's not a king. He's not a king. Not only that, Isaac technically is not his son. He didn't even live in a city. He moved from city to city, spending a lot of his time in small places out in the desert and moving between places. He was nomadic. And we know from the ancient Near Eastern archives, actual stories from the Sumerians and the Babylonians, that they laughed at. They looked down on these nomadic shepherds. They considered them uncivilized. So Abraham was from an uncivilized, laughable people, these nomads. Yet God intervened for Abraham to have another generation come. Now, we continue with the contrast between Isaac and Jacob. Isaac was the one who trusted in his father, who never left the land of Canaan. Isaac was the one who allowed his father to do his arrangement for whom he would marry and so forth. Whereas Jacob was the one who was always scheming and plotting and trying to choose his own wife. Jacob, who left the land, who was very incorrect in his behavior towards Esau. That's why in Galatians, Christ is the son of Abraham through the line of Isaac. Then when you again turn back to Jacob and see suddenly that he begat Judas and his brothers, now you begin to see how the text here in Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament is in a way recapping the story of the Old Testament, which is the critique of Israel, the critique of Judah, the critique of the insider. And of course, in his scholarship, Father Paul explains very clearly that this is the modus operandi of Scripture, that in the Old Testament, in the frontal assault on Alexander the Great, in the era of the Seleucids in the ancient Near East, the writers of Scripture emasculated their oppressor with the self-critique, the self-emasculation. You cannot destroy your enemy by attacking them because then you become as bad as the enemy. 
you dismantle or emasculate the enemy in Scripture by emasculating yourself. It's very important to hear that point, Rich, because very often people see this play in the New Testament. They're not familiar with Scripture, and they jump immediately to anti-Semitism. Well, I disagree, because this is coming from the writers of the text themselves. So it's wisdom literature, and it's very forceful. It reminds me of intellectuals in our present era who are often very critical of their own societies and are outcast for it. That's the vein in which Scripture is handed down. But Scripture goes much further because intellectuals are no different than anyone else in the modern era. They criticize their own society, but from a position of self-righteousness. They don't criticize themselves, whereas the scriptural writer emasculates even himself. Right. And one way that this does that is by moving from Jacob then to Judas and his brethren. It's interesting because it doesn't talk about all the children of Jacob. The author could have said Jacob begat Judas and Joseph and Simeon and Levi, could have listed all the brothers. But the author chose to just have Judas. Now, on the one hand, this is the beginning of the rest of the story that goes to David. So there's a reason for that. On the other hand, we have the connection with Judas, the betrayer that we saw later on. And third, we're able to show that this undermines kingship because Judah was the kingly tribe for Israel. But we don't begin there. We begin three generations before with Abraham, and Abraham had many children, and he had children through Sarah, but he had children through others, and they were all recipients of a promise, maybe not the promise, but a promise. So by burying Judas and by the negative associations with his name that Matthew adds, the kingly line does not look so regal anymore. It tarnishes the view of what it means to be a king. And furthermore, by starting with Abraham, the nomad who didn't even have a city, let alone a kingdom, we undermine what is the origin of this son of David, Jesus Christ, and what that means. So this is a great place to stop this morning. I think hopefully by now, our listeners are beginning to see that this record, this Biblos, this book of the Genesios, the genealogy of Jesus, is not a record in the same way that you have records at the local tax assessor's office. This is not a government document. This is literature. And the names, their placement, the syntax, and their position, not just within the verse or the chapter, but within the canon, all of it has significance, and it's all woven together. It's a construction meant to drive home as the title of this gospel, right? This is the title section of the gospel of Matthew, to set us up to drive home the point that Matthew is making. And already in verse 2, Richard, as we discussed, it's clear that we're dealing with Paul's teaching in Galatians and elsewhere. So it's very exciting, and I'm looking forward to continuing our discussion with verse 3 next week. You have a great day. Thank you, Father. You too. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.